from my perspective, especially as an engineer, I was really hungry for a solution that could bring all the values of the plant-based movement to the animal farming industry so that we could really start to blur the line between what is a vegan product and what is not a vegan product. Welcome to the Plant-Based Entrepreneur Show with your host, Jerry Saber. Hello and welcome to episode 36 of the Plant-Based Entrepreneur Show. My name is Jerry Saver and this is the podcast for you if you're looking for inspiration and ideas on how to get started or if you want to learn more about the skills to run a successful plant-based business. So we'll be talking about milk today and this is actually the first time that we are talking about milk on the podcast. We've done cheese before. But even with all the plant-based milks out there, we have never touched on this topic. But what makes me really excited about today's episode is that we'll be breaking new ground on two fronts. We're not just talking about plant-based substitutes for animal-produced milk. We are talking about milk from cellular agriculture. And the reason I'm so excited about this is because this is one of the technologies that we will be covering in the science and health module of the plant-based business week in September. It's high-tech, it's definitely got a bit of a sci-fi feel to it, which I totally dig, as you can imagine, but it's not very far off from becoming reality and hitting the store shelves. Today I'm talking to Ryan Pandya, the co-founder of a biotech startup called Perfect Day Foods, and they just as I told you, they create milk from scratch. Well, not exactly from scratch. They, they call their process brewing. Yeast is involved, and I'm really looking forward to learning more about it. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Yeah. Thank you for joining me all the way from Berkeley, California, right? Is that where you guys are based? Exactly right. Before we get started with digging into the professional background and what you guys are doing. Can you just give me a quick rundown of who I'm talking to right now? Like who's Ryan Pandya and what brought you to the place where you are right now? Yeah, absolutely. My background is in chemical and biological engineering. And um, I really kind of started my career working in medicine on antibody manufacturing, which uh, for anyone who doesn't know, is basically made using industrial fermentation. So there will be a medical kind of chemical or, or antibody or something that is of, uh, of therapeutic interest for the medical field. And today, the way that most medicines are made, if they're not extracted from a plant uh, or an animal, they're made using fermentation. So we'll, we'll take the relevant genetic sequence and put it into a type of cell that's known to produce a lot of protein safely and, and efficiently and, and put it into a, a fermentation tank, so a lot like brewing beer. You basically feed them basic nutrients like sugar and you know choice metals and things like that, and, and they make the protein of interest. So that's what I was working on. And, and actually, uh, as of three years ago when, when Perfect Day was started, my co-founder and I were both working in medicine, but we both had a personal interest and, and passion for seeing if we could apply this field uh, to really permanently solving the issue of how we get, uh, get protein, and especially animal protein, in the food industry today. For a little bit of background on that, Basically, I, I grew up in Connecticut as a, a fairly normal, uh, you know, American kid. I ate all kinds of things like meat and, and fish sticks and whatever else people eat. And it was basically at the beginning of college that I, I decided I wanted to make the switch to a vegetarian diet, partially because I read a book called Eating Animals, which some of you might be familiar with. 
which, which I thought did a fantastic job of helping me arrive at the feeling that, that there was something wrong with how we get, uh, get meat today and, and that I should really try to move away from it. And I, I didn't have a terribly hard time going vegetarian because I think there are a lot of uh, really great products out there that scratch the itch for me. Unfortunately, though, part of my journey into vegetarianism included the, the realization that virtually all the reasons that I had wanted to switch from eating meat to eating a vegetarian diet were, for the most part, applicable as well to the egg and dairy industries. And for a little while, and, and this might ring true to a lot of people on the show as well, for a long time I, I was sort of creating uh, excuses for myself that allowed me to not eat meat but continue to eat dairy and eggs. And I, I had this voice in my head that was reminding me that the same exact arguments I was using in my head to not switch to a vegan diet were the same ones that, were, that I had been using in the past uh, to keep eating meat. And so I, I had this kind of shitty realization that, shoot, I'm going to have to go all the way to vegan, which I didn't want to do because I knew it was going to be a lot more difficult. And that was indeed my experience. As soon as I uh, started going vegan, you know, it does get easier. But what I found is the, the level of kind of social weirdness that you feel when you're going out, you know, to eat with your friends or you're traveling through parts of the country that aren't Berkeley, California, for example, it is a lot harder to find options. And when you do crave dairy products, uh, I, for me, dairy was a lot harder than eggs to give up. When you are craving dairy, I mean, there are products out there that you can get. Obviously, there are plant-based milks and there are plant-based, uh, you know, yogurts, ice creams, cheeses, what have you. But the issue with these products is that they really are not anywhere near as good in terms of nutrition or anywhere near as close to the flavor experience that you get with dairy products from cows, which is really unfortunate because it made me feel like by denying myself the animal product and instead opting for the alternative, I wasn't really addressing the problem because you know, if, if there's a product that is, that is much better in terms of our values, but it's not a good kind of experience because you're paying more for something that has the, the flavor and, and, and nutrition of cardboard is, is how it feels to a lot of people, well, that means that it's not surprising to me that a, a low percentage of the country and, and the world is adopting a vegan diet. So in other words, it didn't feel like a scalable solution to me because even though if everyone adopted it, it would help we're never going to have a situation where everyone adopts it until the products are dramatically better. Hopefully that all makes sense. And so from my perspective, especially as an engineer, I was really hungry for a solution that could bring all the values of the plant-based movement to the animal farming industry so that we could really start to blur the line between what is a vegan product and what is not a vegan product. Basically, I want to remove that word from everyone's vocabulary because all of a sudden cow's milk becomes vegan. Right? I mean, that's the idea. And luckily, we actually, both my co-founder and I, you know, knew this was possible because, again, we know that many things are made this way. It's not just medicines, um, enzymes for food or even for, uh, for textiles, vitamins, and, and even amino acids are made this way. And so the two of us independently kind of had this idea at around the same time, and we were looking up on the internet, you know, how is milk made, right? And, and could this technology be applied to it? And, and is anyone out there working on it? Did you guys know each other at that point? Or were you just independently researching the, the idea? Completely independent. So it's like the Newton-Liebenez, you know, discovery of calculus or the Wright brothers and, and that other guy uh, from, from Brazil or whatever that was. But anyway, I'll respond to that in just a moment. At, at this point in the story, we don't know each other. And we're both kind of on these independent journeys where we both had the same realization around the same time. So it's like January, February 2014, that not only is this possible, 
but no one in the world seems to have ever had this idea before. It's never even been written about, which was crazy to us. Because in 2014, it's like, what idea hasn't been had? You know, people say there's nothing new under the sun, and yet here this was. So we both reached out to a mutual friend of ours named Isha Datar, a name that might be familiar to some of you. She is the uh, executive director and CEO of a group called New Harvest. It's a nonprofit that is fostering an industry and a, and a movement around replacing factory farming of animals with sustainable ethical technologies. And what that really means, and historically for New Harvest, that's meant tissue engineering meat or cultured meat, you know, which I think is, is another thing that we should really talk about. It's very interesting to me. And I did work on that technology in college. So I knew about New Harvest, which is really like the hub for all people doing research on in that field and you know all the literature is there and all the, the press is collected there. So I emailed Isha in February 2014 and said, hey, what about milk? You know, and I had even written up like a little one-page summary of why I thought it was an interesting business idea and how it could really impact uh, for the better the dairy farming industry as well as all the consumers out there who are looking for kinder and greener food products. Around mid-April, on April 15th, she emailed me, uh, CCing Paramal Gandhi, uh, who's, uh, of course, now my co-founder. And this is the first time I had ever heard of him. She said that we were the only two people, really, sh- as far as she could tell, who had ever had the idea. And so, therefore, you know, we should probably know each other. And it was crazy um, how similar we were in terms of superficial details. What I mean is, like, we were both 22, 23-year-old Indian Americans uh, working in biotech who had recently gone vegan and had this idea at the same time. So it was really bizarre and, uh, you know, of a coincidence. And Isha's recommendation was, why don't the three of us apply together for a startup accelerator? As it turned out, as luck would have it, she had just found out about a, uh, a program that was the first ever accelerator for specifically for synthetic biology companies. Of course, we don't like that phrase, but, you know, that's that's what it was at the time. And so... The three of us together uh, applied to this program, basically myself and Paramal as the founders and Isha as our link to the, the broader network of uh, future food technology, I suppose. And you know, we, we worked our butts off for three straight days. We got the application in uh, right before the deadline, and uh, we ended up getting in. So about eight days later, I quit my job and moved to, to Cork, Ireland, where the program was being held. Again, it was it was the first ever year of that program. So uh, today they're called IndieBio. They're both in Ireland and in California. At the time, they were only in Ireland. So we went over to there, and uh, we spent three months working on our first prototypes, as well as the early iteration of the Mufri website, and you know, getting out there in social media and, and things like that. What you're mentioning right now, just to make it clear for people, Mufri is what Perfect Day Foods was was called in the beginning, right? Yes, thank you. And yeah, sorry, I should have clarified that. When I found about you, you, you were still called Mufri, and I, I thought it was actually a pretty cool name. I mean, it, it made sense, you know, it's Mufri, it's, it has <laughs> no cows in it. Yeah, you know, it took us a long time to come up with that name. We, we had like hundreds of name ideas that were all, I mean, in hindsight, they were all kind of like puns on, on milk or cows in some way. And we were really looking for something that would be unique and maybe could work as a common noun as well as a proper noun. I mean, that was one of the stretch goals of the name because we knew that it was going to be a little bit difficult to, to be able to use the word milk, and it still is, which we'll, we'll talk about later. Actually, uh, before we get started with, with the whole technology part of, of the process, how and when did you rebrand this to, to Perfect Day? Yeah, so we did the rebranding um, about a year ago. I think it was mid-August um, 2016, 
And basically, we knew for a while that we wanted to, mainly because we felt like the name MoveFree was, was holding us back in a couple ways. So the two that, that I think are, are the most poignant are, number one, it's a name that has sort of a, a, a vibe of, of startup-y coinedness. And I don't know if that makes sense per se, but what I mean is I personally started to get a little annoyed by the name because it, it sounds so startup-y. I, don't, I mean, I don't, know, I don't know if that makes sense. It, it does make sense. It's like removing the E before the R and calling yourself. Yeah, well, I, exactly. I'm not going to name any names, but right. there's a few of them out there. Exactly. So, which made me feel like it's, it's going to be harder than it needs to be to have mass mainstream appeal if we sound like a bunch of Silicon Valley people that are out of touch with everything, which, you know, I guess at the time we were, and, and maybe arguably we still are. But the other one is, and, and I think the stronger thing, is that Mufri philosophically is a name that is rooted in what we aren't. It's defining us in terms of being free of Mu, and I don't think that's the way to go. So what we wanted was a name that was, instead of looking to the past and to what we aren't, was instead focusing on what we are, and it was more aspirational and forward-looking. And as it, as it turns out, we stumbled upon a story that uh, there were a group of, of scientists about 15 years ago that wanted to study whether you could increase the dairy milk output of cows by playing music for them. And some of you might have heard of this story, too. So basically, they played, you know, heavy metal and rock and a whole bunch of different genres, you know, and softer stuff to cows, like classical music and, and things like Lou Reed. The milk production was increased by 4% when cows listened to Perfect Day by Lou Reed. And we thought that was just so darn cute. Like, you know, why, we could give cows an even more perfect day, in a sense, by giving them, you know, a vacation, right? And so that's the idea with Perfect Day. And uh, I just love both the story and, and the name. Thank you. So now let's get started with the big questions. First of all, how do you milk yeast or better yet, you know, what's the actual procedure for creating dairy products without involving cows? Because the way I understand it, this is not making a milk substitute. This is actually getting pretty close to producing actual milk, but without involving any, any cows in it. Yep, exactly. And, and so for us, the important thing, and I, actually, I really do want to clarify this. Most of the things that are on the market today uh, that are replacing dairy milk with something plant-based are focused on specific products. So you'll, you'll buy a, a, a soy milk or an almond milk, or you'll buy something that was specifically formulated into a yogurt or a cheese or an ice cream or something. What we're interested in is making milk that behaves like milk with respect to dairy processing. Because we want to make it so that all these companies out there that are buying you know, truckload quantities of milk and turning it into a variety of other products are able to stay in business and keep on making money, but slowly or, or hopefully quickly change from using cow's milk to using animal-free milk. So that, that's sort of broadly the idea because only 20% of the milk produced in America is consumed as a beverage. 80% of it is turned into a variety of other products. You know, you have your cheese, yogurt, ice cream, etc., but then you also have ingredients and, and, uh, and proteins and things like that. What, what you're saying is that this, this stuff is so close to, to actual milk that you can just sell it to, let's say, a cheese-making company or a yogurt-making company, and, and they can keep creating their products without or perhaps only slightly modifying their, their techniques. That's exactly right. And I think that's a really important shift in, in, uh, in focus because if we make something that consumers want but industry doesn't, I don't think we're going to get the kind of impact that we're looking for. 
Does that make sense? Yes. You're going for the B2B aspect of right. the whole process as well. Critical from an impact perspective that, that this appeals to the dairy industry on, on the processing side. And, and I, you know, we'll get into more detail on this, I'm sure, but, but the short answer is it does. It has a ton of relevance and it, it solves a ton of problems for folks in the dairy processing space, which is really exciting for us. I mean, it's not been an uphill battle at all. They totally get it. And again, I'll, I'll, I'll say more about that in a moment. So we aren't just mixing things together and, and you know, adding emulsifiers or, or, uh, or xanthan gum or whatever it is, you know, that, that plant-based products like to use. We're trying to put these ingredients together in the same kind of harmony that they're found in cow's milk. So as an example, we know that milk is a great delivery mechanism for calcium, but it's not enough to just kind of dump some calcium into it, which is what typical plant-based companies do, because the body actually kind of ignores it. It doesn't get absorbed in a useful way. But in milk, the proteins and calcium and fats are all kind of interacting in a complex system. And so at Perfect Day, we're really taking a a pretty high-tech scientific approach to make sure that when we put these ingredients together, they really are interacting with each other and, and behaving together in the same kind of harmonious relationship that you find in cow's milk. So let's work backwards from the finished product. So if you're holding a, a cube of, of cheddar cheese or something that's made our way, all of the ingredients in there are things that are familiar to, to your body already. So it's milk proteins, which almost everyone is, has had at some point in their life, as well as plant-based ingredients, so healthier fats, non-lactose sugars, vitamins and minerals that are found in the same kind of ratios as cow's milk. And like I said before, if we turned it into cheese, it was through the same process that was used with cow's milk. So we didn't really have to change a thing on the processing side or whatever company was making that cheese. Okay? The milk itself, like I said, is, is these different plant-based ingredients combined with milk protein. And that milk protein was produced using the fermentation method that I'll outline in a moment and involved no animal involved in whatsoever. Okay? What I'm trying to kind of get at is that there are two phases to what we're doing. There's the fermentation part where we use yeast to produce milk protein that's identical to what's found in cow's milk. And then a second phase where we and a variety of other food companies that we're talking to now can use these proteins to make a new kind of dairy milk that is kinder and greener and brings all the delight of cow's milk with with none of the compromise. So um, how do we make the protein itself is, is I guess, the part that, um, that I want to focus on. So... Like I hinted at earlier, the, the method we're using is, is kind of nothing new. And I know you're not supposed to say that as a, as a technology founder, right? Everything's supposed to be shiny and brand new and, and innovative, and, and it certainly is, but we're not reinventing any wheels. So the kind of manufacturing process and the kind of infrastructure that's required to make our protein already exists all over the world. And there are major global companies that already have these kind of assets, and that's super important because it means that we don't have to sit here and raise $500 million to set up a manufacturing plant. Instead, we can work with large uh, scaling companies that have a strategic interest in getting into the dairy ingredients market, and we can work with them to bring our technology to, uh, to scale and begin to actually produce large amounts of milk protein. And the way that actually happens from a biological perspective is we're, we're basically taking the same exact biology that happens in the udders of cows and we're porting it to a more efficient organism, which in this case is yeast. Um, and what they're doing is the same thing that the cow does in, in its complicated body. You know, cows have four stomachs. The first one is called the rumen, which is where they're like chewing their cud and everything. And what happens there is there's a diverse colony of, of bacteria that, that live in the, in the cow's first stomach. And when it eats grass or more often corn and soy or whatever it is it's fed, 
the bacteria first break down that complex plant material into really simple components like sugar and, um, and butyric acid and, and, and so on. Um, in, in, the, you know, in the udder cells of the cow, those nutrients that have been broken down from plants are then assembled by the cow's udder cells into the, the structure of milk proteins and milk fats. So we're combining these two things into one step, basically, and having, you know, we can feed our yeast plant material, and they actually break it down, and they convert it into, or, you know, they use it like little Lego bricks and assemble the, um, the structure of milk protein. And they're doing that by following the same exact blueprint that cows follow in the form of DNA. So we, we, uh, we, I think a helpful way to think of DNA is that it's two things. It's a type of data and it's a type of molecule. So in the same way that you can have a hardcover book or a paperback book, but they both contain the same story, you could have two different DNA molecules that contain the same exact information, which is in the form of whatever protein that DNA corresponds to. That DNA is already in, in cows, every single cell of a cow's body, right? And because cows, actually because science has gotten so far, there are free databases online where the, the sequences of all of these different DNA sequences are, are already known and written down, not only for cows, but for all sorts of things. You know, I mean, there's actually like woolly mammoth, like blood cell DNA on the internet because it's just so easy and so non-invasive to obtain DNA samples. You know, a little, a little piece of hair or a fingernail or, or anything can contain DNA. And so scientists already had done this like decades ago. They know exactly what the DNA sequence is that corresponds to all the major milk proteins. And rather than having to get it from a cow, we could use that data, which corresponds to the DNA. And we were actually able to 3D print DNA molecules. So if you imagine the cow is a hardcover book, we were able to, you know, download the ebook and print a new paperback or something, right? I hope that, that metaphor makes sense. I think that metaphor is very fitting here. Great, great. And then, you know, it's that, that completely animal-free molecule of DNA can be basically put inside the yeast cell, um, either with uh, a little bit of calcium chloride or, you know, there's a couple of different ways. But basically, you're, you're very briefly making the, the yeast, like, hungry for DNA, and it eats it up. And then from there, like, millions of times per second, all the little machinery inside the yeast is constantly reading all of its DNA and printing out protein that corresponds to that DNA. So they're already doing that. And the yeast we started with was from the USDA, where they have a big old library of different yeasts that they've identified that are safe and don't do anything very interesting, meaning they just eat sugar and they make more of themselves. I like to say they're living the good life. And we take that yeast and we basically give it this little piece of DNA. And now, again, millions of times per second, it, its internal machinery is reading not only its own internal DNA, but now this new piece that we've given it. So in addition to printing out new yeast organelles and body parts and, and things like that, it's also printing out milk protein. And the really cool thing is we've made it so that the yeast actually exports the milk protein that it makes. So in the same way that um, they can produce a, an enzyme or something that they want to secrete into the outside environment, we have them doing that with milk protein. And, and just to you know, clarify why I, why I think that's exciting, if the cells were making a lot of milk protein but they were inside the actual yeast, we would have to break open the yeast cells and get the protein, which I will dryly point out is problematic not from an ethical perspective. I don't think anyone is worried about how yeast feel. But from a purification perspective, it's a lot messier. And now you have all these like inside stuff from the yeast mixed in with the milk protein. Instead, what we have is the yeast kind of spitting it out 
in the same way that they do with alcohol when you're making beer or wine. So in this case, instead of assembling ethanol molecules and spitting them out, they're assembling milk protein and spitting it out. And then all we have to do is filter out the yeast, and we've got a liquid that contains milk proteins that we can then purify and dry, and you've got a new supply chain for whey protein and casein that didn't require any animals. Nice. So in, in regards to, to the DNA that you're feeding to the yeast, could you actually feed it like human DNA if you wanted to produce breast milk to, to use for infant, infant formula, for instance? Yeah, one of the cool things about DNA is it's a, uh, you can think of it a little bit like a programming language that all forms of life that we know of right now read and write the same language, which is pretty cool. I want to clarify, though, that biology is very complicated. And when we say programming language, it's, a, it's an imperfect metaphor because the functionality of an organism is much more dependent on how the proteins interact with each other than the DNA itself. All the DNA does is tell the cell what protein to make. But how that protein will then interact with all the other things in the system is much more species dependent. In the case of milk protein, all that complexity doesn't really matter because milk proteins are not actually going to be influencing anything else in the yeast's life. They're actually basically invisible to the yeast, and they only do things for us. So how, how long does it take to, to go from feeding your yeast to, to final product? How long does the brewing process take? The design cycle for yeast is pretty short. It's only about a week. And what I mean by that is if we put in the DNA and, and see how the yeast perform, we could be asking the next question about how we could improve the yeast to make it produce more milk protein. We could be asking that question within like a week and a half. And so we can keep on iteratively getting better and better so that we're, we're increasing the efficiency with which the yeast is converting plants into animal protein. And what, what does that mean from, from the price perspective? Well, I mean, I, I would say that that doesn't have the direct influence on price. Well, it, it does in the sense that we're, we're targeting better efficiency, right? And what we've projected so far is that we can actually make milk protein that is more affordable uh, per kilogram than anything from an animal, which is really exciting. That, that is exciting. Okay, so that was the first step. And then you, you mix that up with plant sugars and, and other things. Do you fortify the product as well before you, you bottle it or send it out? Well, so I, I want to clarify that we haven't yet finalized our, our recipe and you know, we, we aren't quite ready to announce these things yet, but because we definitely want it to match the nutrition of cow's milk, we would absolutely be adding vitamins and minerals in the same composition as, as cow's milk. Yeah, so you're, you're basically going for as close a match as possible. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, nice. Do you think that consumers will, will be ready to embrace cultured foods when, when they hit the market shelves in, in the same way that they've embraced milks that's, that come from nuts or pea protein or potatoes? Or do you think there's, there might be a bit of a bias towards them, at least at first? It's a good question. Um, I think like anything else, some people will be ready to adopt it sooner than others. I mean, there's always kind of a curve of early adopters, you know, and then, and then as more and more people see that it's, it's, not, only, it's not only safe and, and, uh, and simple, but also brings a lot of benefits to people that consume it as well as to the world. And so I think anyone who's looking to have food habits that are in line with their ideals in terms of sustainability and animal welfare and things like that, I think that even if they're not among the first people to try it, once they see that there's nothing to be afraid of and that everyone else is enjoying it, I think that they would jump on board. I grew up, you know, most of my childhood in the 90s, and I remember there were some of my friends' parents wouldn't buy microwave ovens. Like, they were, they were afraid that microwaves are dangerous. 
And I'm sure people like that are still out there. But for the most part, I think most people would, would say, you know what, microwave ovens are, are not unsafe. They might be doing things to the nutrition of the food, and, and that's a different issue. But they're not going to give you radiation or anything like that because the, net, the metal net in the microwave door acts as a Faraday cage and keeps the radiation from getting out and being harmful. So, you know, all that is, is not really the point. No one's thinking about the radiation and, and the Faraday cage. The point is we thought it was, it was maybe dangerous because it was new. And within a generation, people realize, you know what, it's not dangerous. It's just plain convenient. And I think that'll happen here, too. And obviously, from, from an ethical vegan point of view, there are really no cows involved in, in the creation of this milk. There's this misgiving that people have about the um, whole cultured meat thing that you still need to take the cells from the animal and then start your, your culture. So um, you're not taking anything from, from a cow's other to, to start producing the milk here. No, just inspiration. And what, what is your opinion on, on the cultured meat thing, really? Just to touch on that subject a bit. I mean, I know we're, we're not talking about this today, but since you mentioned that you did work on it, I would really like to hear Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a huge supporter of, of the effort and the technology. Um, I don't personally think that it's ready for market yet. And so I, I would admit, honestly, that I'm still skeptical about some of the commercial efforts that are out there right now that are saying we're within a few years of having cultured meat, etc. I hope they're right. I hope I'm wrong. But right now, I, uh, I'm a little skeptical. All this to say, I do think it's not as far away as you might think. And I'm hoping that certainly by the end of this century, it'll be the equivalent of our moon landing. So if, if I'm working on the Wright Brothers airplane, I think these folks are working on aerospace and, and, you know, moon landers and things. And we will get there. We'll get there faster than you think. And it's going to be really, really good uh, for everyone, I think. Speaking of timescales, how long did it take you guys to go from your initial idea to having the first prototype, if, if that's even the right word for... For, for your products? Was it prototype milk or just the first batch to, that you brewed? Prototype is, is a generous word for what Paramal and I put together in 2014. We weren't yet able to produce like usable quantities of the milk protein itself. So what we started off by doing was buying very pure milk proteins that are from cows, but are like, you know, super pure and separated from each other. And we tried to just put them together with plant-based ingredients. So basically, we started working on phase two before phase one, because it's, it's obviously the much easier one. And we wanted to confirm like, okay, if I put milk proteins with a bunch of plant-based ingredients, do I get something that is much better than a plant-based milk is today? Because if, if not, then it's probably not even worth trying to make the proteins. But if so, we might be onto something and we should definitely try to make these proteins animal-free so that the whole product can be vegan. And that is exactly what happened. We were able to make a, a pretty darn good prototype of, of milk, which again, wasn't yet animal-free, but I think proved the concept that these proteins, when pure, can be leveraged with plant-based ingredients to make something much better than is out there today. And we knew for sure that, that if it had proper milk proteins in it, it would be able to function uh, just like cow's milk with respect to the cheese-making process. And, and forming yogurt gels and, and all these kind of things. So that was within a few months. But I think it was more like a year and a half before we were really able to make usable quantities of milk protein and confirm that, uh, that we could make all of them in, in the lab. And today, we're moving from kind of the lab demonstration scale to the, the actual production scale, which, which I consider to be more of a brewery than a lab. I mean, people call it lab-made milk, but You know, it's not made in a lab any more than any of your other food is made in a lab. It's designed and developed and, and proven safe in a lab, which 
you know, all of our food is today. And, and that's a good thing, too. So just just a side question here. Who, who was it that was taste testing the, those first results? Was it you guys taking turns or was it both of you? I mean, it, it was it was both of us. Like it was so important to us that there was no way of, you know, we were we were going to be happy uh, with only one of us trying it. We, we both needed to know. But also all the other folks involved in the Indie Bio program um, tried it as well because, you know, it's, it's fun to work with a food company because obviously there's there's stuff to eat and drink. So people enjoyed, you know, talking about how the different flavor and, oh, you know, I recommend you, you change this about it, et cetera. One example, I think this will be fun for people to think about. You know, we, we were not sure about the exact ratios of the minerals that we should put in. And one thing we realized is there are many other kinds of salts out there besides table salt, which is sodium chloride. And obviously, uh, milk is known for its calcium content and, and phosphorus and these other things, phosphate. And so one of the things we realized that improved the flavor a lot is simply having the right mixture of, of minerals and, uh, and salts really gave it this, this uniquely milk-like aftertaste that we thought was super cool. Because I had always assumed that all the flavor of milk was from the fat and maybe the protein and obviously the lactose. But it turns out that the minerals and salts uh, really give it a certain milkness too. So that was cool to discover. Speaking of lactose, how, how well does this milk work for, for people who are intolerant? Can they drink it? Yeah, we don't use lactose. So there, our, our milk uh, is, is totally lactose-free. And um, it's still able to culture into other products, which is cool. So we, we've shown that we can, so far, we can make yogurt and cream cheese, and we're working on a bunch of other things, that even without lactose can be uh, cultured effectively and, and deliciously, I'll add. And, and you're basically making the lives of people who, who have the allergy a lot, lot easier by, by doing this exactly. as well. Exactly. So how was it? Um, I'd really like to know a bit more about the, the Indie Bio Accelerator. I mean, I've heard about it before. I, I know that it's a part of a much larger program. But how was it working with, with that project? How was it being there? It was fun. I'm going to show my age now. I was 22 when we uh, joined this program. And it was It was such an awesome opportunity because like for all the obvious reasons, right? I mean, I just graduated about a year before from my undergrad and and theoretically all I deserved was to have like an entry level job where I where I had like no responsibilities and 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 <laughs> no respect, right? And so here was an opportunity for someone to give me thirty thousand dollars to work on something I wanted to do. It was just amazing that they took that bet on us and that they took a chance on us. I like to think we we did pretty well with it. And it was it was a amazing learning opportunity to, to see what it feels like to run a company from the inside, what it feels like to live in a foreign country that I had never been to before. I hadn't ever been to Ireland. And, uh, and to start to, to make uh, diverse friends from other countries too. So for example, we lived in a house with a group of Austrian guys that also had a company in the same program. And uh, you know, it, was, it was just like broadening our horizons in, in a whole bunch of different ways, which was just super cool. And they were incredibly supportive in terms of helping us to understand how we should talk about what we're doing, what kind of pitfalls we should be afraid of, and certainly introducing us to people that still help us to this day. Did you actually find some of your current team members through, through IndieBio as well? We didn't, but I, I know for a fact that that's a resource that they offer to some companies, which is great. Nice. Where did you find your team members then? Because obviously it was uh, Isha and you and your co-founder. So we, we have grown, uh, we're up to 21 people now. Yes, it's been through a variety of things. I mean, I think the most common way that we hire people is actually from people that reach out to us. We got a ton of fan mail 
and I think you guys will get a kick out of this, it's not just vegans. In fact, we get a ton of emails from people that eat meat and eat dairy and, and they say, look, I get what you guys are doing. I support what you're doing. I'm not yet ready in my personal life to make that jump because, you know, all the reasons I said before, right? It, it's a pain for a lot of people to be vegan, but they want it. And so a lot of people reach out to us and say, hey, I really want to work for you. And right now, like I said, it's only 21 of us and we, we're almost entirely technical folks right now. So there aren't a ton of openings in the categories that people often reach out to us for. But when there is a good fit, that's been uh, a really rewarding thing for us is to, to really be able to start to work with these people. And then, of course, through the network itself. So, for example, we're friends with the founders of similar companies that you guys might have heard of and, you know, in this space. And if there's someone that, uh, that they know is really good that they've worked with or something, but for whatever reason they have a different focus or they don't have an opening right now, they'll introduce us to that person. So, for example, there was a, a founder of, of another company in this space that introduced us to our uh, chief communications officer named Nikki. And what's really awesome about Nikki, I mean, um, everything's awesome about Nikki, but what I like uh, in terms of why she was such a great uh, hire for us is because she was the chief communications officer at Chobani. I think she was employee number five or something over there. So she's got to see that, that company grow from a teeny tiny little food startup to a billion dollar company. And it was one of the fastest growing dairy company, or sorry, food companies like in history. So we like to joke that she's the reason Greek yogurt is a household name. And with her help, uh, we're, we're bringing another exciting movement to uh, the dairy industry too. Nice. So about your, your path after IndieBio, because how did you go from Ireland to, to Berkeley and to, to your current headquarters? So let's uh, go back to that summer. So it was 2014. Isha in June wrote a, a newsletter update for uh, New Harvest, which was basically saying, um, you know, congratulations to Ryan and Paramal. They got $30,000 and they're starting this company. And so we started getting some emails after that from like the press and, and, you know, different newspapers and things that wanted to talk to us, which was really cool. And, uh, and, and I'll add was something that IndieBio did a lot of help with us to make sure we were ready for those interviews and things like that. And so one of the groups that emailed us was New Scientist, that awesome magazine. And so they offered for us to write a story about ourselves in our own words in New Scientist and they offered to pay for it. So, you know, that was another stroke of luck, like no brainer. Of course, we're going to do that kind of moment. So we did it. By the end of June, I think we had that article published in New Scientist. That, that increased the number of people that, that saw us even more. So it turns out that a group of, of investors called Horizons Ventures, based in Hong Kong, have done a lot of investments in this category. So they, they've, uh, they've been involved in Impossible Foods, who have the Impossible Burger, Hampton Creek, uh, plant-based uh, mayo and, and cookies and things, the egg, egg replacement company, as well as Modern Meadow, uh, which I think was one of the first for-profit companies that was developing tissue-engineered meat although now they're focusing on leather. And so we already knew about these guys and we were hoping to talk to them like, you know, in a few years kind of thing. But they actually reached out to us because they saw the article in New Scientist and they thought it fit in well with their vision. And they asked us if we wanted to talk to them. And, and again, of course, we said yes. When an investor like Horizons Ventures asks you to talk to them, that's, that's pretty amazing. Right. We'd be crazy not to. So we did. We told them our story and, and why we thought it had a lot of relevance for the future of protein security and, and as well as obviously it's something that consumers are really looking for in terms of kinder and greener food. They agreed. They invited us to Hong Kong. And so before the end of the summer, we had already visited them in Hong Kong and confirmed that they were interested in putting $2 million into Perfect Day, or at the time, Mufri. And so we were thrilled to hear that, obviously. And, and by September, we had, uh, we had $2 million in the bank, with which we moved to the Bay Area, where we knew that there was a, a budding and, and still even growing now 
um, food technology scene and uh, started hiring some folks and it's been off to the races since then. Nice. So is, is that all the investments that, that you've gotten so far or, or did you take on some, some more? It's all the investment that I can announce right now. Okay, cool. Got you. So obviously that went off really well for you, but um, if, if you hadn't gotten through to, to Horizons, how would you go about raising funds for, for the company? Did you have a plan in place already? Well, I mean, the, the default answer was present our pitch at the uh, end of the program. So most accelerator programs have this kind of thing where they call it like demo day or something, right? And so that was what we were going to do and hopefully start to build relationships with some investors. I think the most likely thing we would have done would be to raise a, uh, a convertible note round. So for anyone not familiar with that, basically someone gives you a loan and it's typically like a collection of angel investors. So we would have found three or four or five um, wealthy vegans or, or people that are value aligned with this, this kind of thing and gotten, you know, 100K here and there from each of them or something. And it would have been a loan, but the terms of that loan are that if within the next X months we do a full venture financing, that debt would actually convert into the equivalent value of stock. And that, that's, a, that's a really common type of investment vehicle in venture capital. And so I think that's what we would have ended up doing. But honestly, I mean, I, I'm very, obviously, I'm, I'm so glad that we didn't do it that way and that instead we, we started working pretty early on, not just with an incredibly uh, seasoned and, and well-regarded group of investors, but ones that are just so darn founder-friendly and believe in us too, which is great. So with, with all of this, what, what has been the most important thing that you've learned or had to learn as a startup co-founder? I think that there's not enough emphasis on the soft skills. So everyone talks about the legal stuff and the financial stuff and the technical stuff. But, you know, I think it's really important that when you hire people for a given specialty or, or expertise, you really take that advice and you listen to them. One thing I noticed in other startups and in horror stories I've heard from people that leave certain startups is that founders don't believe in their own team or they have too much of their own opinion. And maybe it's because we're so young and, and we have no illusions about our own kind of <laughs> legitimacy, for lack of a better word. But, you know, we have to embrace uncertainty in terms of doubting ourselves and, and believing that something that one of my employees tells me, even if I disagree with it, you know what, they might be right. So everything needs to be really considered carefully. You know, when we started the company, we were under the impression that we were going to be primarily a consumer products company. So think... Hampton Creek for dairy or something like that, right? Although, you know, with a different kind of technology. And one of the things, it took us a while to really get comfortable with, but we were talking to more and more people that were saying, you know, guys, you have to be appealing to the industry. And so it's kind of like what I said at the beginning of the show, the business to business angle and making sure that we're developing ingredients and technologies that other groups in dairy and food can use, that's so important. And, and not only that, but it's, there's more money to be made there too and more impact to be had on, on the issues we care about. So I'm not even sure today why we were like uncomfortable with that. Maybe because we didn't want to run the risk of being like a faceless brand or you know, con ingredient company that people distrust or, or think is sneaking ingredients into their food, um, which is why we, we really try to go out there and, and talk as much as we can about what, why, and how we're doing what we're doing. But anyway, all this to say, we did end up embracing that. And I think, I, I can't think of the examples right now, but there have been a number of times over the last three years where we've had to embrace a minor pivot or a new perspective that we hadn't thought about or something. And if you're running a startup, that's probably one of the most important things to realize that at any point you 
might get some new information that pushes you in a slightly different direction or you're going to reevaluate your your goals and at that point you have the choice whether you keep on going down the same route that that you've already set or if if you go with the new information because ultimately it's it's going to work out better for you yeah you know, I, I think the conventional wisdom, and maybe this is why I, I, I had extra trouble with it. The conventional wisdom is that if you're a strong founder, you have to have these decisions or, or opinions that you really stick to your guns on. Like everyone wants to be Steve Jobs, right? So you have to be like, here's what I want. Damn it. I won't settle for anything else. It'll be that or nothing. And it's tough to know where the line is because you don't want to dilute your vision to the point where you've lost the magic. But at the same time, it needs to work. I think there are countless stories out there of startups that failed because they failed to uh, adapt. Yeah. So pivoting at the right moment, at the right point, is I think it's crucial for, for a startup. So I would really like to know how far away are you from actually launching something and what, what products are you aiming to have in, in your initial lineup? So the, the way I understand it, your, your path is... Kind of like a mixture between B2B and, and B2C, but possibly leaning a bit more towards B2B. Exactly. I, I like to think of the Perfect Day brand itself as doing two things. Number one, we're going to have exceptionally high standards for what kind of goes into our products and, and how they're presented and marketed and things. We want that to be kind of like the flagship of the industry so that consumers who are maybe on the fence or aren't really sure what, what it, what's up with it can turn to Perfect Day for something that they know is going to have all of their standards for, for their values and food, as well as we need to take it upon ourselves to be the mouthpiece of this new movement so that anyone who has questions or concerns about the technology we're using can ask us, or even better, you know, the questions should already be answered on our FAQs, and if they aren't, we, we should add those answers so that more and more people and, uh, and more and more other companies can look to us as an example and, uh, and again, bring, begin to bring more variety out there. Now, considering the plan that you've just disclosed and the things that you've been doing so far and the media coverage that, that you've gotten, what, what has been the reaction from, from the dairy industry? Has there been any? I mean, the short answer is we've, we've really been blown away by how much the dairy industry seems to support it. And I think part of the reason that it's been easier than you might expect is because the dairy industry has already broadly adopted the same technology before in the form of rennet, uh, which a lot of you might be familiar with. Rennet is the enzyme that acts on casein, the protein, in order to make cheese curds. Historically, it was obtained from the stomachs of baby cows. And since about the 80s, it's been produced in fermentation. And today, more than 95% of cheese is made with rennet that never saw the inside of a cow. So they've already broadly embraced it. And we're basically just going to them and saying, look, that has helped you guys a lot in terms of efficiency, in terms of making more money, and we can do the same thing for the proteins, casein, and whey. Any company that buys milk ingredients would love for them to be cheaper and, and higher purity, and that's basically what we're offering. I mean, there's, there's virtually no downside because all of a sudden you can appeal to vegans. You can, you can argue that your product is saving X number of gallons of water, right? So there are consumer benefits, but, but also simply on the procurement supply chain side, Here's an ingredient that all of a sudden doesn't have a 35% fluctuation uh, year on year the way that dairy does and, uh, and can be available for a lower cost at a higher purity and, and doesn't go bad as quickly. I mean, it's just better across the board. So it's super interesting to, to anyone who buys dairy. And as a result, we've found that we've been pretty much welcomed into the dairy industry 
as an ally by most groups rather than a, a foe. That's pretty cool to hear because you are obviously familiar with, with everything that Hampton Creek has been and is still going through with the backlash and, and the flag that they've been getting for, for trying to upset the egg industry. So it's really cool to hear that it's, it's basically completely opposite for you. Yeah, I mean, so far. And, and I'm, I'm going to be a realist and say, look, it's a big industry. There's a lot of people in it. It's not going to be the case that everyone loves what we're doing. And I'm sure that there's going to be some mud thrown at us at some point. I think all we can do is try to go out there early and say, look, we're not here to destroy your livelihood or tell you that you're doing something wrong. This isn't an, an arrogant Silicon Valley thing. It's something that we think is coming. It's inevitable. Even if we don't do it, someone will. And so we would much rather work with groups that have expertise and presence in the dairy industry than fight against them. And I say that, and we try to ally with them. Look, some of them will say yes, and some of them will say no. And the ones that say no, if it gets to the point where they feel existential threat, I'm sure that they will fight, and it, it won't be pretty. So I don't know. I mean, the best we can do is try to be prepared for it and try to be nice guys about it. You know, I mean, I think there's a lot of companies out there that, that do things that are disruptive, and they have an I'm better than you attitude, and, and you know, that's not our style. So how about the, the whole labeling thing? I mean, did, did you pick up on the, on the news that just a couple of weeks ago the, the European top court ruled that plant-based dairy products can't use terms like milk, cheese, or, or butter. So where, where would your products actually fit into the whole scheme there? I did see that. You know, I think we're going to have to come back and save the word milk eventually, but it's, it's a battle I don't expect to win in the short term. So I think we're going to have to think of something that we can call it that isn't the word milk. I don't know what that is yet. We're working with uh, some naming groups that, that professionally name things, basically, because we need to call them the experts. But honestly, if any of you have suggestions, like we're, we're really open to it because it's super important. I don't even know what would make sense other than milk because it's not a beverage, right? It, it does so much more than be a drink. I'd rather not have the, the primary noun be like product or something, right? I mean, it, it, so I don't know. I think Europe will be a difficult one for us to get into, not only because of the, the labeling, but also because they have even more distrust and fear of genetic modification than the U.S. does. And so the assumption there is, is that, uh, you know, if you're using this technology, it's, it's bad or harmful or dangerous, and which, which obviously, I mean, maybe doesn't go without saying, but that, that isn't the case. And the, the broad scientific consensus right now is that this technology, like any technology, could be used for good or for ill but uh, inherently really poses no threat. In fact, is much safer than the alternatives used today, where if you want to change the um, genetic makeup of an organism, like a plant or something, the non-GMO way is to zap it with radiation, create a thousand mutations, and maybe one of them is the one you want, but you don't know what the heck the other 999 are. So that feels more risky to me than changing the one thing that you know you want to change. But anyway, that's, that's off topic. The point is, you know, there are regulatory issues in, in certain areas I think the U.S. will be pretty easy, and I think Asia will be pretty easy, but I do think Europe will be difficult, and I hope that uh, I hope that the people of Europe, if they want this, and I know a lot of people do, because most of the fan mail we get is actually from Europe. You know, I think we have to tell our governments that that this isn't working for us, and that defining milk based on how we get it doesn't make as much sense as defining milk based on what it is. Yeah, exactly. Where it makes less and less sense as as these kind of products become available and it becomes obvious that they are much better for, for everyone. Yeah. So you're, you're talking about not just the U.S., but Europe and, and Asia as well. Obviously, you, you have plans there. Absolutely. I mean, I mean there's, there's basically no part of the world that we don't want to expand to. And that's mainly because, 
you know, it's I, I personally don't think that living in one country versus the other should hold you back from buying something that you want to buy. Um, I mean, the borders we draw are are convenient for a lot of reasons, but you know, they're fake lines, right? And so if if someone and again, we get fan mail from all over the world, so. I, I want to make sure that all of our fans, no matter where they live, um, can enjoy what we're making. So, speaking of your fans and of borders in of the world, what do you see happening in the next 10, 20, 30 years if we keep on building the, the things that, that are being built right now? What, what's your vision of, of the future? I think that we can look to the transportation industry as a little bit of a, an example of, of how this has gone. The phrase beast of burden had, had a real meaning because animals were better than humans at doing physical labor until we developed machines that were better than humans at doing physical labor. Uh, and so, for example, today, if you, uh, you want to get from point A to point B, a, a vehicle is, is the much better way to go. However, it's not the case that there's no such thing as, as horses anymore. Um, or that you can't even ride a horse if you want to. There's still plenty of people that do. But the nice thing is it's something where the experience of the animal and the treatment of the animal is is much more respected and much more important to the whole process. And so I think what would be great is if this happened to animals in the food industry too. Personally, I would love it if we hit a point where zero animals were harmed for food. But I, I try to take a little bit more of a realist stance that for, for better or for worse – arguably for worse, there are people out there that, uh, that really are, are going to hold tight to wanting to eat animals or the products they make. And so the, at least you know, I can try to optimize for a future where if you want to eat an animal or you want to eat a product that came from an animal, it should at least come from one where the story behind the animal is one of respect and, um, and, and the, you know, the producer and the animal are, are, are taken care of which I think is true in some animal products today, but, but not all. In fact, very far from even most. So does that make sense? Yeah, that, that definitely makes sense. And I totally agree that realistically, I, I don't think we can expect the world to be 100% vegan ever, but just shifting it from the current, I don't even know what the ratio is, but... Two, three, five percent to to just the opposite to getting less than ten percent people who who still consume animal products. That would be a huge win. Yep, and, and I think I think it'll start to accelerate pretty rapidly. I, I am optimistic about that from the perspective that uh, you know once there's a good alternative there and you really can't tell the difference one way or the other. Like if the only difference was you have to pay more for the animal product and there was suffering involved, why would anyone do that? I mean, I can imagine that once people are having children that have only ever grown up in a world with cultured cellular agriculture products, as well as more expensive, suffering-laden animal products, I think most people would prefer the way we're doing it. I definitely see that as well. So it's just a matter of waiting another generation or two, and, and we're there. Ryan, we're going to slowly finish this off, but since you've been dropping hints for a while now that you do welcome feedback... And you did mention that you do build up your team from, from people who just reach out to you. What was the best way to, to get in touch with Perfect Day or pitch a name for, for your product or even apply for a job? There's a little contact us form on our website, which I think is maybe the easiest way. But other than that, you can always email uh, info at perfectdayfoods.com um, and, uh, and we'll, we'll receive it. And, and I go through all of them. Sometimes it takes me a while because... 
there's a lot, <laughs> but but uh, we we do try to get to everything. So yeah, please don't be a stranger. Let me know if you totally hated everything I just said and, and think I'm ruining the world. I, I don't think that anyone would, would be thinking <laughs> that. I mean, this this was a really interesting talk, and I thank you very much for for joining me today and yeah and for sharing all of that. And I'm um, I'm really looking forward to the day when. When I can try not not just the milk that you're producing, but see how the um, let's say cheese made with perfect day food tastes. I can't wait for it either. And for all you people out there that used to eat dairy and, and stopped and miss it, we'll uh, we'll bring it back for you. And so I can't wait for that day too. Awesome, hey, Ryan. Thank you very much for your time once again. That was awesome. And have an amazing day. Thank you. You too. Take care. Bye, everyone. Okay, so this was Ryan Pandya, the co-founder of Perfect Day Foods on the Plant-Based Entrepreneur Show. And wow, I don't know about you, but I am very impressed by their approach to business, by what they're doing, and that bit of info about the dairy industry actually welcoming their product. I think that's a really, really positive sign for the future. So I know that this episode was pretty intense in terms of all the information that we were putting out. But if you missed anything, remember that we collect all the links to the things that we discuss in the podcast and we put them in the show notes for you. So you can find those on the website if you go to theplantbasedentrepreneur.com forward slash show forward slash episode 036. Also, if you have any extra questions or if you want to send in any suggestions or comments about the podcast, you can reach out to me directly by email on jerry at theplantbasedentrepreneur.com. And if you know anyone who should definitely be featured on the show, I'm always looking for new suggestions and interesting people with world-changing businesses and ideas. And on the topic of world-changing ideas, like I told you at the beginning, if you want to know even more about this emerging field of cellular agriculture, We'll be covering it in depth in the science and health module of the Plant-Based Business Week. The online summit launches on September 12th. It's going to run for seven days and you can register for free if you go to plantbasedbusinessweek.com. So register there and that will give you free access to all the interviews as we release them. And I'm really looking forward to seeing you there. So now that'll be all for today. The Plant-Based Entrepreneur Show will be back again next week. Until then, stay awesome and remember, the future is plant-based.